Filmmakers, it's time to use Soldo. Soldo is a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees and production assistants when in prep, on set or in post-production. Soldo is a multi-user expense account that helps you control business spending. You can give Soldo cards to some or every employee, to entire teams or even contractors instantly. Transfer funds to all card holders. And you can use Soldo for free for three months with the code FilmmakersPod. Soldo.com. Listen for more info in today's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 307 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie films, studio films, TV, everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to fuck it up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a director, writer and a producer. And today on the show, we have the director, Julian Gilby. Now, I've known about Julian for a long time. He's been one of those directors who has been on my radar. And the reason for that is because of his career. He's had a really fantastic career, especially around the time I was starting to be a director. His first film, Reckoning Day, um, which he also was the cinematographer for, which he does on most of his films, which came out after he'd made his second film, Rolling with the Nines, which stars Vass Blackwood, Robbie G, Terry Stone and Jason Fleming. And then he went on to direct Rise of the Foot Soldier, which became a massive, massive hit. This film is about the life of career criminal Carlton Leach, and it stars uh, Ricky Harnett, Terry Stone, Craig Fairbrass, Roland Manukian, uh, and Neil Maskell, just to name a few. Julian then went on to direct A Lonely Place to Die. This was his first foray into making movies set on mountains uh, and climbing, and this film blew up. It stars Ed Spielers and Melissa George about a group of mountaineers in the Scottish Highlands and they discover a kidnapped girl and then pursued by her captors. Then he went on to direct Plastic, uh, which again starred Ed Spielers, but also stars Alfie Allen, Will Poulter, Sebastian D'Souza, Graham McTavish and Robbie G. It is an action comedy and it sort of took him away from where he wanted to be um, as a director. So, this brings us to today and the film that we are talking about the film that's out now summit fever this is a film about a young climber played by ryan felipe um you'll know him from cruel intentions and many many other amazing films uh he spends a hedonistic summer in chamonix while attempting to climb the world's deadliest trio of mountains despite witnessing bloody fatalities while ascending the first two peaks he and his friends persevere onto the final climb unaware of a deadly storm brewing on the other side. It also stars Hannah New, Freddie Thorpe and Mathilde Warnier. The film is out now through Signature Entertainment. It is on digital platforms. Do seek it out. I am joined by director Phil Hawkins, whose feature film, by the way, A Prancer Tale, is out in the UK early December on Sky TV. It's also in the US um, on digital on the 22nd of November as well as Blu-ray and DVD. Myself and Phil uh, sat down with Julian Gilby to talk all about his career, working with stars, what the Hollywood system's like and why you have to get your hands dirty to do well in this business. 
Thank you for listening. As always, I honestly do appreciate it. Um, next Tuesday, we have Sally El Hosseini. She is the director of My Brother the Devil. This film really got me wanting to be a director. Her latest film, The Swimmers is incredible and it'll be out next week as well it's gonna make a splash (laughs) literally because it's timely it's incredible so join me um for that episode which will be out on tuesday so i have just finished a three-month shoot uh, of a tv series it's around europe mainly in italy portugal and spain and to be honest I'm shattered. I'm not going to tell you about it, mainly because I'm always talking about my projects, haha. But also because I can't yet. But I wanted to mention what I have learnt. The filmmaking is about the process. It's about learning about yourself. It doesn't matter what you are making, if it's a music video, a short, a feature. It's about the value of that overall process. And you can get out what you put in. And if you don't progress and grow, then it's not working. You see, you should make mistakes and you should learn from them. You should fail and learn from it. Don't expect the first thing or the 49th thing to be the BAFTA winning project. You might aim for that, sure. But that is not the important factor. It's about getting the hours in, learning and constantly improving your skills. And if you want to do this as a career, you should be failing upwards. And it's very okay to do that. It's been interesting for me on this job because I've been juggling being on set every day and then still pushing through the other projects in the evenings. Script reading, uh, edit checking, finding money or finding producers, contracts, social media, paying people and getting distribution deals, DCPs and deliverables for Three Day Millionaire. It's been a burning the candle at both ends situation without a doubt. I mean this, even though I'm envious of those who can switch off and not think about work or actually do work, I am also immensely grateful I have that drive as it's got me where I am today. Because today is the premiere, literally the world premiere, of my 10th feature film as a director or producer. If I was Tarantino, I would retire. Sadly, I am not. And I need to keep and want to keep working and driving towards getting better, failing upwards and understanding the value and the process of filmmaking. 3-Day Millionaire is in cinemas around the country from the 25th of November. And we're doing a Q&A cinema tour all around the UK, of which I will be at all of them. Dates and venues are in the show notes, so do come support and say hi. But this is a huge feat for any movie these days, let alone a little indie like ours. But it didn't come easy. We had to fight for it. We had to knock down, say, smash down doors for this to happen through huge adversities and massive disadvantages. But we did it. So what I'm saying is, if you want to be a filmmaker and carry on being a filmmaker, don't expect anyone else to do the work for you. Graft your ass off and perhaps you can have a career doing it. Shout outs this week go to Celine Arden. Um, she has her Kickstarter happening right now. It's called When It's Over. It's a short film about fighting or not for someone you love. It's written by Celine Arden and Bruno Turekel. Celine is a, also an actress and Bruno is directing this piece. After Celine went through a challenging time in 2021 and ended up in hospital with stomach pain, uh, while there, thoughts of life, relationships, and mortality flooded the idea 
for when it's over. And that is how it was conceived. If you just want to support in any way, then do retweet them. But if you do have a little bit of cash and you want to support this really excellent sounding film, then do. Link to that is in the show notes. Right, let's get to it. So sit back, relax and enjoy myself and Phil Hawkins chatting with director Julian Gilby. Hello, sir. What was it when you were a kid that inspired you to go, ooh, hang on, could I do that? Is that something I could do as a career? Was there any films that really made you get inspired to direct? Wasn't actually any specific film, although no. everyone, some people have a very, fa- you know, a favourite film. My favourite film was Jaws. My favourite film was always Jaws because I, yeah. I'm born in 1975. So the thing I, was playing on TV since the very late 70s, early 80s when I was sort of four, five, six years old. Right. And, and of course, we all have memories of having to jump behind the sofa when the head with one yeah. eye, you know, came out, <laughs> Ben Gardner's head came out and all that yeah, rest yeah, of it. Yeah. And it was... Um, everybody in school when you're sort of six, seven, eight years old, even into the early 80s. Sure. No one was no one was talking about Jaws 2 or Jaws 3. No. Everyone was still just talking about Jaws. You know what I mean? It was, it was just like, it was so damn good. But yeah. it's a very interesting thing that you asked because um, where I got inspired was when I was at prep school, and I remember it was just my last year at prep school, it was like 1987, so I'd have been sort of 11, 12 years old. Mm. And they had, they just brought this incredible thing into the school. They brought a video camera. And it was, you know, it was a video camera with a great big wire. And then it went to a VHS deck, which was held, held in a kind of another suitcase thing, eight feet from the thing. And they created, they, they created the movie group, if you like, in the school. I thrillingly signed my name up repeatedly and asked to join. And of course, the teachers, probably in a moment of spite because I wasn't the favourite sort of child at Sheem school or whatever else. They just said no. But I watched what they were doing and the thing was, was that they were making a movie. Yeah, they were making a war movie with tomato ketchup and plastic guns and a starter pistol. Mm-hmm. But it was so thrilling. I was like, my gosh, you're you're like kind of playing a game, but you're you're making a story and you're kind of able to be a kid and, and, and carry on doing this. And it's really entertaining. Mm. So my sort of inspiration to get into movie making was when I literally saw a video camera and realized, oh God, you don't have to be on some set, you know, with million, these cameras are here. You know, I mean, everybody takes these things, all the kids nowadays, all the, yeah, the iPhone. it seems like 99% of them just want to video somebody falling over or some yeah. shit. Mm. Yeah. Like, Seconds guys, you yeah. can go and make an adventure with this thing. Yeah. With the iPhone. You know, oh my yeah. God. Or you can buy, you can buy a, a video camera with a decent lens for 200 quid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you for, for my yeah. 16th birthday and I've been making movies for three years by then. Only because, wow. like, you know, my father said, you know, I'm going to do something now. And he surprised me. So I'm going to buy you a video camera. Wow. And he bought me a video camera. And th- in 1991, that thing cost 1,400 quid. Mm. Right. You know, it lasted yeah, yeah. me a decade. It lasted me almost a decade. Yeah. But, I mean, all I was ever doing was making movies with my friends. Horror movies, action movies, war movies, blah, you know, experimental movies, everything. But I just think – I didn't understand why everybody else wasn't – thrilled that my Christ, you can go out and make a movie. Mm -hmm. It's like a lightning bolt from God. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, you know, Mm -hmm. before, you know, you know, you could, you could always draw a comic strip. You could always draw something. You could always write something. But from the eighties onwards, you could make something. 
you know, with your friends, with, you know, with, you know, whether that's with a plastic gun and some tomato ketchup or whatever the hell it was. Mm -hmm. To me, that was the most inspiring, amazing, freeing thing. And nowadays, I don't know, I look at my kids and my friends and whatever, and they just, they, 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 they kind of just don't give a fuck about the video type thing, you know, access on their phone. They don't realize. <laughs> yeah. They don't realize you what know. an amazing thing they've got in yeah, their pocket that you can shoot something. And actually, uh, yeah, they, they look great. There's nothing wrong with some of the stuff that's, you know, our friends, Matthew Butler Hart and Tori Butler Hart made an amazing film, Infinite and Subject Unknown on their phones with Ian McKellen in it. So you can do it. You know, it's, it's not hard these days. I mean, yeah. I mean, my whinge is you're always just on the slightly wide angle lens more. Yes. I mean, I would, no, no, no. I mean, no, hey, that depends. I mean, you know, Terrence Malick doesn't want to use a long lens. You know what right. I mean? And, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, no, but, you know, I think, you know, quite seriously with a phone, you could probably get, I reckon, you could get establishers, you could get shots that you could you could sneak into a proper feature film, definitely, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I've done it. A hundred percent. It's 4K now and everything. Yeah, yeah no, 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 totally, totally. totally. Yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds like, you know, I, I, I uh, completely relate because my film school was going out making films on VHS with my mates in the back garden. So, and that was my film school. So do you think that now that people should be, if they're interested in films, should be getting out and making stuff and learning through practice? Or do you think there's still a room oh, for like 100%. the theory I mean, side of it? And, you know, how do you feel about that? Well, no, I mean, the theory side of it, I was like, look, I, I hate it when you see some people make a debut film and I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've seen it. People are making their debut film with a million quid and they don't know what the fuck a camera is. And they don't know what it is. And I'm like, yeah. guys, why didn't you make your debut film with a mobile phone over a weekend mm -hmm. and a couple of mates? And, you know, you do a barbecue for them, blah, blah, blah. And you write a five minute story or whatever else. And it doesn't cost anything. And you do. Yeah. And then you go, shit, you know, I didn't really like it much, but you know what? I learned a lot about X, Y, and Z and blah, blah. And then, you know, it's, you know, it's all, it's like anything, you know, nobody writes a great book. Nobody makes a great film. And, you know, so, you know, so I think, I think it's just that practice, 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 practice. And I was making, you know, movies since the age of 14. So I don't know. I mean, for me, it was, you know, I, I wasn't thinking that, you know, the movie I made age 14 was going to somehow be in a theater. I was just, so you, you're not afraid to make mistakes. You know, mm -hmm. you're not afraid to experiment or anything else. You're not, you know, I think sometimes there's all this pressure. Like I'm not going to make a film until I'm ready. I'm not going to make a film until I'm ready. I'm not going to make one until I'm ready. You know, I'm just, just going to wait, still get better. You're not going to get better mm -hmm. until you've made something and go, Oh, you know, cause I mean, I remember there was a friend of mine and he was talking about how he planned this beautiful sequence for two years. He planned it. He worked it all out. And when it came to actually shooting it, his his first AD came along and said, right, we've got 10 minutes. We're going to have to do this in two shots. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're soul crushing. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. something. But, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's just so it's an interesting, you know, I, I personally think that, um, you know, you can, you can write, you can come up, you can bounce ideas off each other. I mean, you know, whether you write on final draft or if you can't, afford final draft you can simply write on word you mm -hmm. you can doubt you know nowadays well, back, at, back, yeah, but back yeah. in the olden days guys you know mm -hmm. if i wanted the screenplay to something like pulp fiction i had to part with 10 quid and buy it from hmv yeah. and mm -hmm. drive all the way or take the train into reading to get to, to hmv to pick up a tarantino screenplay nowadays you know you want the screenplay to training day you go online and i think you can get it for free because it's like regarded as a learning you know mm -hmm. thing. Tool. Yeah. yeah so there's, yeah. there's there's so much now 
now so much yeah now. i love what you said there about about don't worry about it not being good enough learn from your mistakes by shooting something people get really bogged down in my short film my first one has to win a BAFTA. it has to get no shoot yeah. something don't show anyone don't even put it on youtube shoot it edit it see what it's like and go thank you play it for your family oh, now that's a really in interesting room. thing that you said mm. there giles yeah don't put it on youtube mm. and I, I, t I tell you why tell you for why is that um when I was younger, you know, our audience was to get everybody that made the movie from, you know, mm. your A-level friends at college, <laughs> all get round, have a few beers and watch it, pat each other on the back and go, what are we going to make next? I'll tell you, at that stage of encouragement, do you need some spiteful wanker in... <laughs> Some keyboard warrior. <laughs> Some keyboard warrior in Liverpool, yeah. age 45, yeah. with his trousers around his ankles. He's just had an hour of masturbation to you porn and his mother's downstairs making his pizza. <laughs> Other porn sites are available. And there he is, and there he is, <laughs> looking at your first movie on YouTube and you're going, yeah. oh, shit. Shit, yeah, shit. Yeah, you I know what? Better, you're yeah. just going to feel bad about it. Yeah, you are. And yeah. I go, no, please, don't, don't, you don't. Forget, forget about that. Just just go and make your movies and keep mm. learning. And mm. I, yes, I don't like this instant judgment that the internet can, can literally just cast out because it can actually take a lot of confidence away from people. And it also takes a, lo a lot of, you know, because, and I'm not going to ramble on, but I will just say something about the internet that people should be wary of. Mm. Giles, if you walked into a burning building tonight and saved a child from death and came out and we were like, oh my God, Giles has just saved this 10-year-old. Very likely some to do cunt, that. Some cunt will go online and go, flash twat. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, think, <laughs> he thinks he's really up, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, thinks you know, exactly. Yeah. So you can't, you've got to, you you've got to. No, so you can't mm. be a slave to those people because there is a lot of negative energy out there in the internet. Yes. There's a, there don't is. get me wrong, there's a lot of positive in, uh, energy as well. And a lot of people, a lot of people are on the internet are polite, if one is polite. Yeah. However, I would say to people making their movies at this early stage, you know, show it to maybe some tutors, show it to some people that you respect. Mm -hmm. Don't don't put it don't put it online for anyone to just compare it to the Fellowship of the Ring and tear you to pieces. You know, yes. yeah, yeah, no, totally, know. totally. Because audiences are like uneducated, aren't they? In a way, you know, to like the the they they see a film that you made a film, they go, well, why doesn't this look like? The Matrix or Jurassic Park mm, or well. insert film here, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And um, it, it, and it's interesting that you talk about that having that. Uh, Paul Greengrass calls it the kind of the permission to fail. Like he says, like mm. I would have got nowhere without cutting my teeth in like ITV, Granada, you know, making really bad stuff and growing. And that's Paul Greengrass, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that's almost a slight fault of an industry that we're in, as it were, to go like. You know, there's all this, almost, all you hear are these stories of someone making an amazing first feature film and then like exploding and winning everything. And, and, and it's a lot of pressure. Uh, and what you don't realize is it, you know, it takes the, the old adage of it takes 10 years to make an overnight success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. And I think people in this day and age of immediacy and wanting things now, you know, I think it's, it's important, as you've said, to, to, for people to understand that, you know? So Rolling the Nines, uh, was, that, was that your first feature? No, rec or reckoning Day you did before that, didn't Reckoning you? Day. I Though. did, I did. I came out of university and Reckoning Day was shot with a clock, with a couple of clockwork, clockwork, 16 millimeter Bolexes. I oh, I'd shot, I'd shot with Atons and Aries at university shooting 400 foot of 60 millimeter, but the clockwork Bolex will only take a hundred foot 
of uh, 16 millimeter, which translates to two and a half minutes. So you've only got two and a half minutes of film, you know, and you've got this wonderful sort of handheld thing. And so nothing's going to be a long shot. And uh, yeah, and we just decided to make an all out balls to the wall action movie, um, you know, which we were going to have to post up completely because the thing was so loud. Rolling with the Nines was, was a funny one. We were actually you know, trying to make something completely different. And um, Rolling with the Nines was a case of people came up to us and said, we have an idea for a film and we have at least some finance for it. And uh, so, you know, and then we sort of jiggled about with it and played with it. And yeah, you know, but um, Rolling with the Nines was definitely not my first feature. It was definitely reality. It was my second feature. And, mm. you know, it was it was one of those films where it was just very uneven. You know, you had some very serious themes and then you suddenly had some very actiony action. And it was it was one of those films that was, um, it, you know, it was frustrating for me because, you know, I can watch sections of it and go, this is really, really good. This is really working for 10 or 15 minutes. Then I can sort of see where it drops off. And I, you know, and, and you can see the limitations of actually what you had. You know, it looks bigger, bolder, and more expensive than what it actually was, you know, by, yeah. and, and, and then, yeah. So that's you know, rolling with the nines you're talking about, right? Yeah. Which is a great achievement. I mean, everyone's trying to make things look bigger and more expensive, <laughs> you know, yeah, no, uh, with our project. So that's something to be lauded for. Totally. What, how, why, do you, why did they come to you? Because that's something that a lot of our filmmakers ask. It's like, how did they get the first film? How do people come to them? How do you make stuff happen? I met somebody, I met somebody through our sales agent for Reckoning Day and he introduced me to somebody mm-hmm. who was talking to somebody. Everybody's trying to make, you know, get something made. The, you know... The, Something that I've noticed in interviews, or rather that in articles, has not been mentioned, and I really think we should talk about this, is, you know, a lot of independent films being made, England, America, blah, 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 blah. And, and I always say, you know, if you're going to finance a film and, and somebody says, I, I need a bit of a favor if, you know, we're going to put this finance in, that finance in, what have you. And I totally get it if somebody says, oh, do you mind if my daughter works with the art department and does some painting and, you know, but uh, yeah, great. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What the fuck is the problem with the fact that so many of these wannabe investors is something I haven't had to worry about recently, but it's something that one has had to step over in the past mm. is these wannabe investors want to fucking act. And you're like, Oh <laughs> my God. I mean, yeah, with Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, you yeah, know, he was, yeah, he was told yeah. you can have the entire budget as long as Mr. Blonde is played by my girlfriend. Oh, and mm. right. Mr. Blonde has a girl. Mm. He, and he almost took it because he literally he had the money there. Yeah. He didn't take it, and the rest is history. <laughs> right, um, you know, but. And, and you know, but but you know, it is, it is, it is, and so this is one of those frustrating sort of things that you know, a lot of younger filmmakers are going to get, which is like, I can make my film, you know, gosh, I can, you know, I've got all the money here, but oh shit, my lead actor now has to be mm-hmm. this bloke here, and my lead actress has to be this bloke's girlfriend, and you're like, what are you doing? Yeah. You can't hide in front of you, the camera. You can't hide in front of the camera. The camera yeah, does not yeah. lie. It shows up when people can't act. But I get why first-time filmmakers accept that because it's like, well, I, oh, yeah, it, no, I've absolutely. spent, you know, 15 years whatever, trying to get something made. Yeah. It, you take it, but I totally get it. It's kind of bullshit. It's like, you know, oh, I'm just going to operate on you because I played operation as a kid. It really is. <laughs> it's, it's very, mm. why should I be able to operate on you? Why should you be able to act in front of a camera? Some people are very natural, but. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's just shot a film and I'm not going to mention what the film is, mm-hmm. but he's just shot a film. And, and he, again, he was like, oh fuck, I had to have this bloke and I can't even edit around it. It's just this car crash performance. When it goes away, the film's really good. The moment the guy walks in, it's a disaster. And you're like, 
it's it's just it's, it's I do I do genuinely feel sorry for a lot of people. I I've never really heard of it happening in America so much, but it seems to happen over here all the time. And I just you just you just you just can't you know as an actor you just if if you want to roll to just keep auditioning. You know, keep keep auditioning enough. You'll if you're good enough, you'll find something. You it's know, very true. It's very true. So look, you so you went from Reckoning Day, Rolling with the Nimes came along, and it did really well. Like you say, you got BAFTA nominated for it, which is incredible. And you directed it, you edited it, you you wrote it, and with your brother as well involved with the editing and writing. It, then Rise of the Foot Soldier comes along as well, and again, that's two really you know, and essentially big movies in a row at that time. We'd written Rise of the Foot Soldier before Rolling with the Knights. We just couldn't get the finance for it. So we'd met, we'd met Carlton Leach. We, we'd, we, we'd written Rise of the Foot Soldier. We had this beast of a, you know, we had this beast of a script at the time. I think it was about a three-hour movie. And, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it was still, you know, it became easier to, to, to get it financed. And the thing about, you know, Rise of the Foot Soldier is the more I kind of delved into the past and, and everything, you know, delved into the history of it, that, you know, I found a lot of these very interesting things that, you know, Carlton himself perhaps wasn't so interested in. But, uh, mm. you know, uh, by the end of the movie, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, Carlton, you know, you know, Rise of the Foot Soldier, when the reviews came out for that film, I, I wanted to go and kill myself. Really? You know, because, oh, fuck, one minute, I'll really exaggerate. I, I, wanted, I was very upset. I exaggerate when I say I wanted to go and kill myself. I understand but that. I will, but it, I will say yeah. this. I will say this. When you get this level of reviews from the Times and the Guardian and everyone else, and they're not even reviewing it, they're reacting they're to reacting. it. They're reacting. I agree they're with that. They're just so yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. angry. Yeah. They're so angry at the violence. They're angry. They're not even questioning yet. I'm sorry, but football hooligans throw things at each other and mm-hmm. call them guns. Yep. You know, that, that, that is, that is the, you know, trust me, we, we've done enough of the sort of work on this thing. And, you know, it was, it was, it was very kind of frustrating because when you get hammered by a lot of bad reviews, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you go into your shell, you start to, it's, again, it's a bit like, as we were talking earlier, a bit like, you know, you're, 14 year old filmmaker who puts his movie on YouTube and then suddenly gets destroyed by a bunch of, you know, people. But, you know, I I can imagine it feels similar, you know, because it it does, you feel really, really kind of, I don't know, quite beaten up by Mm. it all. It breaks your heart, doesn't it? It's literally like it can't be, but it's in some way like your child going, I hate you and then running away. I mean, it's and saying and keeping saying it and keeping saying it. I don't know. I can't, how do you come close to it? And do you think it's that kind of divide? Because sometimes, you know, the divide is seems to be ever getting ever wider between kind of critic and audiences. And it felt like, you know, uh, Rise of the Foot Shoulders was a film that found its audience and audiences enjoyed it. Oh my God. Well, the, yes, Phil, to just tell you, I mean, like what happened was Rise of the Foot Soldier sort of came and went in the cinema in September 2007. And then, you know, come Christmas time, this thing exploded on yep. DVD. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, like, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, like, 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 yeah, you well, know. I remember at the time, I, you know, uh, you talking to sales agents and suddenly, you know, you were the marker. It's like, we could do Rise of the Foot Soldier numbers. It became like a thing. <laughs> You know. Oh my god! No, I mean it was it was. I mean, I, yeah, it was crazy. No, and I remember I spoke to, you know, because I was speaking to Optimum at the time, who've become suppose Studio Canal or whatever. And um, you know, I spoke to them, you know, and they said that the first week of sales, you know, Boxing Day two thousand and seven, they said, yeah, we've just we've shifted sixty seven thousand units, and you're like, <laughs> what? You know, within three weeks, you've done a hundred and something thousand units, like. 
this is just nuts because you know it, it, it was it literally suddenly everybody was talking about it mm-hmm. you know and it, you know i mean they really were everybody was talking about it. everybody really really loved it nobody you know it's one of those funny things you know i mean you know on, on rotten tomatoes and there's only got a few I mean, there's only about five or six reviews on it for some reason they haven't got the old reviews on rock tomatoes from it but you know it's it's, it's got you know and nothing critical score and then like 83 percent from fifteen thousand plus people you know and it, wow. it was like well it, you know it, it it worked and I, I you know i i thought it was an enjoyable period piece i mean you know the, the final 20 30 minutes of the film was you know two potential theories of how these people were killed and then we ultimately went with the court case version mm-hmm. of events. I said, mm-hmm. well, let's film the court case version of events as well and have that as it and stuff. And then when you're still getting people complaining that there's a bit too much blood and bone and splatter from people being shot by a shot, you're like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. But you, you talk there about how, you know, the downside of those reviews and especially when it's critical reviews, but then literally months later, you are now being talked about as the franchise guys, this is going to be. Well, you know, yeah, that's, this is what you're talking about. I never knew that. Cause you know, I mean, I, I, I vehemently didn't want to do a sequel to rise the foot soldier. And uh, why was that? Because I didn't want to. I mean, uh, okay. I'll tell you what, well, firstly, because they're all dead. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Yeah, yeah. Spoilers, everybody. Doesn't stop any. <laughs> <laughs> no, but also I think, I think, I think, you know, I'd, I'd already kind of, I'd, I'd had these other ideas of movies that I wanted to do. And by that stage, we were sort of, you know, working through, you know, A Lonely Place to Die and all these other things. And I, I, I've, I've kind of, I mean, people kind of forget I haven't really done that genre since then. No. You know, and and, no. and, and, and I, it's not something I'm really sort of particularly interested to, you know, I mean, you know, this Rise of the Foot Soldier 3, 4, 5, 6. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, they're making yeah. money still. They're making lots of money still, you know, that's that, which is, you know, good for the distributors and the people making them. But Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily help you, you know, on a career path. Right. And trust me, when the distributors are going to try and keep as much for themselves, they're not going to give you, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. any particularly you know, fantastic rates at it. Um, I mean, no, you, you know, I have to ask you, you know, 10, 15 years later, do you still want to be making a sequel to something you made, you know, that, that long ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, good luck to them. Good luck to them. It's, it's just not my, you know, not my sort of thing, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And I suppose then that brings us on to Learning Place today because it is stunning. You know, it's a fantastic film. I really, really enjoyed it when I saw this. You know, it's up 10 years ago now and, and I, I was like, this it still holds up. It's still great. Um, but did, did it come off the back of, you know, uh, Rise of the Foot Soldier, in fact, that people trusted you, that you could make movies? Yeah, my, yes, this, this wonderful chat, Mike, Mike loved it, Carnaby, who sadly mm-hmm. is now retired. Mm-hmm. He said, will you do another movie for us? I said, well, what, what, what about? And he went, you can do whatever you want to do. Wow. So I kind of came up with this idea uh, which 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 ended up being quite which basically which is what the ledge is now this film called the mm-hmm. ledge but mm-hmm. there yep. was an idea that that came to sort of be the idea and then they sort of started raising money on it and then William and I didn't like it anymore so we wrote something completely different that was much more sort of <laughs> like uh, no country for old men yes and then Mike Mike read our new script and went yes yeah I like it but you know at the end of the day we just put a brochure out it's got mountains on it. So, you know, what, 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 whatever you got to do, he's got some mountains in it. So I said, so basically you're going to give us, you know, you're going to give us three million quid to make a movie 
Uh, and the stipulation is it just has to have mountains in it. Just, 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 just make it exciting and put mountains in it. It's a dream. It's a dream. So me, in the room. So me yeah. and William went away and went, well, you know, we can, we can, we can work with this limitation mm-hmm. here. Yeah. You know, we can, we can definitely work with this limitation. And William had this idea. He'd, he'd written, uh, my little brother William, he'd written a script, which he, he could never quite get to work, but it had a very seven-like ending uh, where... You know, the, the, the film took twists and turns. And at the very end, this chap is told, the hero of the film is told, your daughter is uh, buried in the ground and uh, you'll never find her. She's buried within a 50-mile radius and blah, blah, blah. The point was it was a very downbeat ending and you knew his daughter was going to die. And right. William said, it's a horrible, horrible seven-style ending. I just can't really make it work. And I'm like, right, well, Mike wants this mountain adventure. And... Uh, <laughs> I said, so why don't we take your idea of somebody buried alive and instead of killing them and having it as a horrible end of the film, why don't we have this as the actual catalyst for the movie? Mm. And he went, ooh. And then I said, oh, and how did I tell you what? What if a bunch of mountaineers found it? <laughs> <laughs> and we went, oh, ow. Yeah, which means we can have Aon. That makes it really like, and that, that's going to work because it's much more fun to do that than do it in the centre of London or of do course. it in Piccadilly, you know, do yeah. it in the high, you know, if, you, if she's buried in Hyde Park or whatever, you've got the usual running mm-hmm. around, yeah, London horrible street, street lighting, mm-hmm. black cabs, police cars. You know, I, I would fall asleep just thinking of locations. <laughs> if somebody asks me to make a movie in London, it just, sorry, yeah. I'm not, I'm not the guy to make films in cities. And when people are like, oh, we want to make this movie, you really feel the city. I'm like, oh, God, no, no. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I want to see London. Like, he's never been seen before. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I can't. Um... <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I've, I've done my underground car parks at three o'clock in the morning, yeah. and they're not much fun. No. They're not much not. fun. You're in a position now where Mike's literally gone, here's three mil, go right, it have mountains. You you and Will, great story. You've come up with the only place to oh, die. Oh, yeah, well, we, we, we did. We did I, but we were desperately trying to move away from Rise of the Foot Soldier because forgetting the financial sort of success of this film, especially on home video and everything else, we still didn't want to do another one. Mm. You know, we, we absolutely, you know, and it was, uh, it turned out to be really fun. Mm. You know, I, you know, a lonely place to die was a sort of a fascinating thing to write and it was a really fun thing to sort of, you know, plan and, you know, and, and all sorts. It got, it got me massively into climbing because I wanted to make it as realistic as I could. Oh, so is that when yeah. you started climbing, making Yeah, I took it up. I took, yeah, I, took, I mean, I'd done scrambling and mm, mountains yeah. and stuff before, but I didn't take it, I didn't take it up properly until 2008. Wow. I was sort of, you know, but that's, that's when we, you know, that's when we started rope climbing and, mm. you know, the highlands of Scotland, which is bloody hell, they got some steep cliffs, I can tell you. Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 totally. And then, and, and yeah, and that became a very, very, interesting project you know it really really did well the yeah. cast you got in there you know um you've got sean harris for one uh you've got yeah. ed spielers melissa george you know, melissa yeah. george is obviously huge Gillian um, gregor who's been on this podcast in the past you know but your cast in in terms of just you know did, did that make a difference did they need names you know was that something they asked or they asked me for a name for our lead but um you know, uh, my my initial choice for the for the lead was going to be an actress called Franca Patanza. Oh yeah, and we were going to initially shoot in the summer of two thousand and nine, and we got pushed to the spring summer of two thousand ten. So Franca was no longer able to. I went out to Germany. I went out to the, you know I went out to Germany, met Franca Patanza. Yeah, also because you know there's a bit at the start of the film where Melissa George is talking about the Eiger, and that's fine. 
But the Eiger was conquered by the Germans in 1938. So, you know, Franca had more of a sort of... Mm, made sense. Connection. More of a, more of a thing to... Mm -hmm. Yes, and a connection to the Alpine mountains than, 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 than an Australian does, you know. It became a, a fascinating project. And, you know, we went to lots of genre film festivals and it was really, really exciting. Yeah, and it must have done... I mean, I'd say it must have done really well for you because in terms of... It was well received as far as I remember. And I... Really liked the film. I thought it was fantastic. Fan mail. Fan mail. Sponsored by Soldo. So, Tobias, which famous person wrote to us this week? A bloke called Ethan Hunt wrote to us. Mm -hmm. You may know him from the Mission Impossible series. Oh, yeah. Must have been really difficult to get hold of him. Yeah, he's always on a time limit, that guy. So he wrote to us as he wants to make a remake of Face Off. Mm, he'd be good in that role. Which one? Either. Do you know what? He's just hunting for an opportunity, I reckon. Uh, as we at the Film Squad are at the forefront of indie filmmaking, he mm -hmm. has asked us for help. Can we help? Of course we can, because we use Soldo. What? Soldo? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Toby. Soldo has been expanding into the film industry and it's going to be an absolute game changer for filmmakers and how film budgeting and production flow is managed. Basically, it's a payment solution that replaces petty cash given to employees or production assistants. Get three months for free by using the code FILMMAKERSPOD. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Oh, we should probably get back to him. Oh, don't worry, Ethan. We won't leave you hanging. Well, let's talk about your latest movie, Summit Fever, then. Why don't you give us a short synopsis and then we will play the trailer. Summit Fever is a very simple story about uh, two youngsters who go out to the Alps one summer to uh, climb three of the most dangerous mountains in the Alps. And uh, yeah, they're young enough and dumb enough and brave enough and uh, yeah, to, to go out and do it. Uh, and uh, it, it encapsulates all the failures and tragedies, you know, on that particular journey. You know, a journey that I wouldn't necessarily take age 47, but this is a lot of this film is about the what's it what's it called? The, the invincibility of youth and the utter myth about the invincibility of youth, you know? amongst the climbing fraternity has been killed. His sponsors pushed him too hard, man. Demanding bigger, bolder, scarier routes. Me? Mwah. I'd like to get back to some good old-fashioned mountaineering. It was really special skiing with you today. Is <laughs> in condition? About as good as you're gonna get right now. Michael? We might not get another chance. I'm doing this with or without you. Let's go knock this bastard off. About time. He was there for me when I needed him most. <laughs> he kept me safe. And now he's going to get you killed. <laughs> I'm calling Mountain Rescue. You think they'll turn back? Did we? So, up or down? Storms change course. Needs get the hell out of here! Vanity is a deadly thing to bring into these mountains. It's gonna get us all killed! The only way down is up. You have to trust me. I can do this. 
Freddie and the training, and I don't think I'd done any, correct me wrong, any climbing um, before this film and really kind of embraced it. And, and it was basically you guys. Because, I mean, I can't stress how stressed I was watching this film. Like, we all know the tricks, right? Mm-hmm. We all know, okay, we find a low bit of lot. And then I was watching stuff thinking, that is, that's not green screen. That, yeah. That's He's at height there. <laughs> Who yeah. is this nutter and why and how has he got this insured and what is going on? So I was stressed yeah. as a filmmaker and also stressed as an audience member. And then when though, you know, and we don't we don't do spoilers in the podcast, but when that some of that stuff starts falling oh, yeah. and those injuries start happening and, and it and it and it goes kind of dark, you know, I was like, what are you doing to me, mate? Like I can't <laughs> handle this. You know, and, uh, I, and it, so I have questions. So <laughs> please tell us how you get either the permission or the the balls or the you know you, you talk about the in, you know, invincibility of youth, but my God, you you took a film crew and made a <laughs> made a movie on the side of the Matterhorn. We take a film crew up to a certain point. You know, yeah. you can take a film crew onto the glacier. You can shoot certain bits. You can shoot what the, the luxury you have is. You know, my my attitude was that I was never going to have a side angle green screen shot. So if I'm going to have a side angle shot that way or a side angle shot that way, I was always going to fill it with jagged 15,000 foot peaks or whatever else. There's no need need ever to do that. Um, You know, and I knew that I would obviously have to get up to, you know, uh, know, yes, well, with with, with Freddie, you know, I I said to the the team way ahead of time, I said, look, I think Freddie was talking to me earlier. I I think we can get him up the Matterhorn. He was so sort of a... so we spent a week in Snowdonia, mm-hmm. sort of getting him up to, you know, getting him up to sort of similar terrain, all this kind of thing. And I mean, you have to go out there. You can't just climb the Matterhorn. You have to acclimatize for several days. You can't just go to that height. You'll just, you'll just get pulmonary edema. Um, you, you know, you've got to, you've got to acclimatize more gradually. Uh, you know, so you have to climb high, sleep low, climb high, sleep low, climb, and then you'll basically, you know, be able to get up to sort of heights of, you know, 4,000 meters plus. And, um, yeah, you know, and then and then you know, I thought, well, you know, I gave him a couple of lines of the dialogue from the sort of dialogue scene on the summit, and gave him two or three of those lines, knowing that, gosh, you know, I've got to match this in later. The other thing, my my, my big thing, Phil and Giles was, shoot your stunt people, shoot your climbers, shoot your mountain stuff ahead of time, right? Because then when you're getting actors to match in with it, you're getting actors to match in. You know, and I'm talking actors. You've got you've got the actors ten, eleven thousand feet up on the side of Mont Blanc. You can mm. get wonderful shots of them. And I've got pictures and everything that I'm matching movements, then clinking their ice axes, all these kind of things. But always get, you know, get your stunt people, if you can, get your stunt people to do your stunts first in any kind of movie ever. Get your stunt people to do your stunts first because instead of getting your actor to do it first and then getting a stunt man to have to slightly double an actor who's not doing something very well, yeah. it's much better to get a climber or a stunt man doing tip. something perfectly and then the actor can re you know you know uh, redo some of those bits for you you know reconstruct some of those bits for you to do copying obviously the better you know yeah exactly they're going to copy it in a much better way than doing this on their own they're going to copy no, it oh god i want it to look good that's a great tip yeah really nice because it felt the the accuracy felt and it didn't feel because at times it had that kind of real like did this actually happen kind of feel to it i can't quite describe mm. what it was because it's not kind of based on a true story although it's kind of 
you know, I know it's based on like, experiences and, and, and climbing those kind of mountains, but um, so it, the accuracy of it felt there's slightly like a like a nice docky style to parts of it of like you know the ropes and the harnesses and all the stuff it felt like if this was like a big hollywood movie version you know like the cliffhanger version you know <laughs> hollywood i'll tell you the one movie hollywood got right you know this it was everest was very accurate but but if you go back and watch everest everest is ultimately more of a snow plot you know your sherpas have put your lines up ahead of time and people are walking up to the summit crawling over and pulling themselves up a bit of rock and, and, and ultimately sort of walking over. We had a lot more, sort of, you know, climbing to do. But the finale of Summit Fever, the, sort of the big storm sequence on Mont Blanc at night. Yeah. I mean, you know, where I got inspired from that was, was a, a completely true story, which is the 1961 tragedy on the south face of Mont Blanc on the central pillar of Franey where seven people seven youngsters went up and only three survived and you know three of them got struck by lightning over four times there was blue flames coming out of their ears wow. one of them one of them then fell into a crevasse they were all dying of exposure and all the rest of it and I actually did a less dramatic version of it you know my, my, yeah, and, and then you know yeah so to, to, to read a, a review that says you know, you know, by the time the finale comes along, you've just got, you know, uh, over the top ridiculousness. You know, there's no way you've only got a one in 14 million chance of being struck by lightning. Well, you want to stand on the side of a fucking rock face at 14 and a half thousand feet in a thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. those, those, those odds go up, mate, you know, yep. quite considerably. Yeah, yeah. When you're dealing with nighttime, that's one of the few times actually, Phil, where we weren't, we weren't at such high altitudes. We were at these big cliffs, uh, these big cliffs that were down in Chamonix. It was sort of, you know, you know, so that we were, we were at 3000 foot there as, as opposed to, you know, 13,000 foot type thing. But you're not in a studio, you know, you're not on a set, you're there. You yeah. know, that's the point. No, 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 it's all rock. It's all rock. Yeah. But yeah. what I, you know, I came up with very early on, I said, I'll tell you how we can sell this at height. And I said is because, you know, when I climbed the Eiger in 20,000, uh, in 2011, I remember very well, we got up early in the morning and I remember seeing these storms. 20, 30, 40 miles away. And it's weird because you can't hear them. It's just these flashes. But you, they, they light up the peaks. And so that's where I came up with this idea. It's all visual effects. Mm -hmm. But I said, look, we'll get the right mountain shots and get the VFX. So when the lightning goes off, suddenly you see, oh, shit, they're 15,000 feet up and there's a jagged ridge of Mont Blanc behind or mm -hmm. whatever, you know. So that, that lightning was, uh, yeah, I was very pleased with actually this review in The Guardian that's, you know, it's a bit sniffy about some of the story, but it was still talking about the, uh, the the climbing sequence. And then it, it said, I haven't got it in front of me, you guys can find it, but it said that we ultimately pulled off the storm sequence better than Everest pulled off the storm sequence in Everest. And that's a $55 million movie. So yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, and I, and I did feel we pulled that storm off very realistically. You really did. How do you, how do you go about prepping for it? you know a specific like the end sequence how do you go about going? drawing the shit out of right it. okay i i i mean i've never done so many drawings in my life I, you know i was an RA level student oh, and okay it was so you can draw a bit no i was good at drawing but i never really enjoy drawing i enjoy drawing uh, a few fish <laughs> you know my kid my, my two kids love okay. fishing and stuff i don't mind drawing a carp or a trout or whatever if i'm doodling oh okay you know, if, if i'm drawing with a kid but i I'd never be asked to draw pictures anymore. But then funnily enough with storyboards, I'm like doing the storyboards and all of a sudden I'm like, hang on, am I enjoying this? 
But you know what it is is you plan there because I mean I needed a second unit and a third unit on this film. Right. Okay. That's the other thing. Some filmmakers can be quite precious about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep. Of but, course. Um, but I'm like, no, 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 no. If you've drawn this shit out, you know, you, you know, you, I had a wonderful second unit. Uh, director John Shake and you know we we were matching footage from two years earlier you know mm. stuff like that because the pandemic had delayed everything but we were oh, matching footage so he had he had sort of footage to match in from 2019 and I said well look you can get him to put his head up there because that shot we did in 2019 on the Eiger that the stunt guy in red is there down and then he looks up so if you can go and get, go and get Michelle to repeat I mean literally it was, it was almost like putting a jigsaw puzzle together and funnily enough sort of some of this footage being much further apart made the continuity sort of easier in a way because you're going back to it matching it i noticed obviously some lovely little anamorphic flares coming off the head torches on the night sequence and stuff but the but the the well the version i saw was 69 so i wondered whether that was filtering or whether that was a you know lens choices and and obviously lenses in the cold and you know let's geek out <laughs> let's do it phil phil i have a terrible confession to make to you and i love two three five to one I love 235 <laughs> to one widescreen. Okay, right. I, it wasn't going to work for this film. Uh, it's too fucking high. Mm. You know, everything in in the Alps, you're doing that. You know, you know, this is not, it's not Scotland. It's not 3000 foot peaks. It's, it's 13,000, 14,000, 15,000 foot peaks, you know, and, uh, you know, Mont Blanc, Mont Blanc from base to peak yeah. is higher than Everest from base to peak. Uh, you know, cause yeah, so it's you know, up a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, but you know, Everest is on an 18,000 foot platter, mm -hmm. you know, so that means you've got 11,000 foot to go. Mm -hmm. But Mont, Mont Blanc is almost 16,000 feet and it starts at Chamonix at 3000 feet. So you've got 13,000 foot of solid rock. So you've actually got a lump of rock bigger than Mount Everest at a slightly lower elevation of altitude, but it's still a bigger lump of rock. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, Two, three, five to one. You were just going to be just carving it up and losing too much height on it. It's like Spielberg and dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. You know, it's kind of yep. it's like doing it in that that format to uh, make sure you had the height of the dinosaurs. A hundred percent. And none of those Jurassic Park films, even since those Jurassic World films, they're sort of shooting about two to one, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. They're not. They're yeah. not doing two, three, five to one because no, no, I think you need that extra height. And you know, it's the same with with. I mean, I saw Avatar in IMAX. And that was whatever it was, you know, IMAX 1.4, 1.5 to 1, whatever it is. But um, I know that Cameron had a, a wider version on normal theatres, but he still released it, home video and everything else. He decided to release it 178 because he wanted the height. Mm -hmm. and, and the same with the same with this film. So we didn't shoot Anamorphic. We definitely, definitely shot this film with spherical lenses. Mm -hmm. And that was still just those, those head torches shining and creating that, that glare. I mean, um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can always, you know, one can always tell a, an anamorphic lens. I was taught this way back when, and I know I'm telling you something you already know, but maybe our listeners don't. So, you know, is that, you know, you can always tell us something's like anamorphic or like with Lawrence of Arabia, if it's actually been shot on 65 millimeter, mm -hmm. or if something's, you know, widescreen or not, is of course, you know, you're out of focus lights in the background because, of course, spherical, you've just got round lights yeah anamorphic they're all ovals mm. you know what i mean because everything's being squeezed and so it's really weird but pull focuses in anamorphic mm. very oh, yeah. really weird aren't they yeah. very very i mean old. i love it but yeah <laughs> oh no no yeah <laughs> yeah 
But no, just because you had the streaky head torches, I wonder why maybe it's just how they react to the lenses. So, yeah. They just J.J. Abrams the shit out of themselves. Nice. Uh, you know, it was cool. just, yeah, they just did that. Because it, it was an added level of, of mentalness. I was watching it going, wait, he's taking anamorphics up a mountain and then Coptic 69. Who is this guy? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but, uh, no, they were definitely spherical. Yeah. Right. But it helped to think, you know, I was talking about that real docky kind of realistic feel because then you talked about IMAX, you know, yeah. that's what we relate to that kind of format now. And some of those shots, those helicopter shots of your amazing stunt guys or climbers on the mountain, you're finding them tiny, tiny, tiny and growing. You're all yeah. pulling away from them. You got all that scale. You know, yeah. it, it worked really well. Well, I, I wanted to, do, I mean, even it was interesting when we were grading it and stuff, because, you know, you know, when we're grading it and stuff, they're like, right, you're doing this 185 to one. I went, no, we're doing it 178 to one. Can you take those tiny little black bars? I want as much height as possible. Yeah. I, I, you know, I really, really do. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, I, I, I'm planning a couple of projects at the moment. And one of them is definitely 235 to one. So I'm, I'm a fan of both formats. I really am. You know, it's, it's just, it just, just, just depends what the subject matter is. But you were talking about lenses and it's interesting. You know, when I climbed the Matterhorn, uh, we, you know, we climbed with, I had a 16 to 42 zoom lens. That's the other thing. Mm. You know, you, you can't, you can't go up there with a prime lenses and be fucking around changing from a 20 <laughs> to a 40. <laughs> to, a, to no, no, you've got to, you've got to be less, you've got to be less picky than that. You've got to be using zoom lenses, mm. you know, and uh, you know, not, not all the time, but you, you know, we, we had a lot of zoom lenses on this film. Good quality. I mean, this is fucking Optima lenses, really, really good. But, you know, I climbed down the summit of the mountain and we had a 16 to 42. Mm -hmm. So nothing's, nothing's, you know, I mean, you you know, our eyes are a 50. So it's still wider than that when I took up there. There's no point taking a long lens up there. You take a long lens up there and you could have shot it anyway. You know what I mean? Mm, I shot it from the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But the thing is once, uh, you know, the one thing I was constantly saying, because a lot of directors of photography love to shoot wide open or they love to shoot very shallow depth of field. Uh, you know, uh, you know, which, you know, in, in, in accounts of the state in certain interiors, it can be very neat and beautiful how you separate the, the background from the foreground. But there was a lot of times where I'm like, fucking hell, why, you know, why are we shooting this at T1.8? That doesn't even look like a mountain behind him. It looks like a blob of what, can we just whack in some NDs and get it to sort of, you know, T11, T, you know, T11, T16. It's still blurred, but I can now see it's a mountain, yeah. you know, and that, you know, that was, that was my, my real thing was always about the backgrounds is there's no point going up to these places. There's no point, you know, there's no point climbing to these places or doing it and then just blurring the shit out of the background. Yeah. You know, you know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a sort of a, a, a middle ground and you've got to go with your wide shots that aren't, you know, that, you know, mm. as well, you know, it's nice to have a wide angle shot where something that 50 miles away is also more or less in focus. So, uh, you know, so, so you know, uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting one, but you know, from a lenses and a point of view, that was just a few thoughts I had mm. really. No, no, it's great. And, and did you mix formats in terms of cameras? Like, did you go sort of GoPro at any point? Cause it didn't, nothing ever felt like GoPro-y or that, you know, that kind of look. No, I never went GoPro, but we did have to mix formats because I mean, you know, often, you know, with the sort of the drama and all the rest of it, you know, we shot with the Arri Alexa, but even if you get the Arri Alexa mini, 
once there's nothing mini about it once you've attached no. a battery pack mm-hmm. and a lens and everything else it's like no no no, no. i need I, I you know when we climbed the matterhorn when we were on the side of the north face of the eiger there's a c300 mark ii 4k mm-hmm. body mm-hmm. and a lens and i remember building it in the, in the hire house and they were putting all these racks and they were putting all these things on all, all these pretty things, things on like, take it off i said strip it it's heavy strip it strip it and they went well if you don't have this it'll support i said i said all i can have is a body and a lens. Mm-hmm. They went, well, what about a matte box? You're going to get flare, glare. I said, well, I'll use my hand. Yeah, I'll, I'll use it. my yeah. hand and then block out the sun. <laughs> yeah. and, they, yeah. and they were looking at me. I said, I said, I said listen, I'm going to be hanging off the side of the Don de Jean with, you know, <laughs> 200 meters below me. Or I can't have all of this kerfuffle. Yeah, you know, I've got you. Got you. Got to be turning over. You know, so there is, there is, you know, yeah, you know, if you're filming somebody walking through a beautiful English garden, you can, can muck about with the yeah. map box a bit more. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, true. you have to. Th- yeah, but you have to sort of, you know, you have to be real about what you can do when you're hanging off the side of the mountain. On that, then, how how did you like get the scenes done? Because let's say you are hanging on the side of the mountain, which you were, and the snow's going, or there's the weather's crap, but you've got to get this scene done. Was there anything specific you did there to get it done? Or were you just kind of like, get this fucking done? I mean, we had to come, I mean, we had the weather crap out and there was a lot of bad weather last year, which is why, um, you know, the Iger sequence became more bad weathery than it was in the script. Um, right. But um, uh, you, 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 you become a slave to forecasts. You know, last year we didn't have any high pressure. We had low pressure the entire time, which meant that when we had the bright sunny days, it, it was only bright and sunny. We knew that we've got bright sun until 11 o'clock and then it's shitting out. Right. You know, right. And, and, the, and the other thing was we had a really ambitious party scene where they were going to be by a lake. There's going to be 150 extras and there were going to be like, you know, lights and this and there were right. loads of people by a lake and blah, blah, blah. Pissing with rain. And I mean, <laughs> I mean we, had, we, had, we had a week of rain. Right, of course, yeah. what this was what this was doing was at two thousand meters. That was that was falling as snow. So then all our night shoot at the end when they're fighting in the snow and all that was real snow at you know seven thousand feet. Wow. Um, but that all fell as rain in Chamonix, and then it, and then it was like we're just just going to have to do this as an interior in a house party. Mm. And I remember Tian and my producer said to me, went listen. It's the best party scene ever. It's quadrophenia, and it's just in someone's fucking house. And, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, I was like, you know, and, and, and you know, and I was like, this is it. If we're, if we're swirling around the summit of the Matterhorn, no one's going to give a fuck if we don't have a drone shot mm. over a party scene by a lake. Literally, and also because these guys are skint, they're in they're in their tents, they're this, they're that. A house party actually lent itself to being more aesthetically realistic to what a bunch of climbers are going to do. That's true. You know, yeah. they're literally just going to be having a few beers and jack up the stereo and a few lights. And, you know, they're just going to be having a party where you are, where you are, where mm. I am right now, you know? Mm. And so funny enough, it was one of those happy accidents where I'm like, yeah, I don't need to make this look particularly bling. It's just, you know, we'll just have Ron Philippi, you know, drinking beer in a, you know, in a, in a house and chatting away. Mm. And, it, and it worked really well, funny enough. And I wouldn't now go back to make it a great big massive party scene like Apres Ski and Zermatt or some mm-hmm. bullshit, you know? Yeah. Isn't it interesting how those compromises do change? But we have to think like that as filmmakers, right? You have to go, I've got to change this now. And it's annoying part of the time. But actually, like you said, it worked out for the best. I, I think you have to measure it against your big, like, you know, Giles, if you've got, you know, it's one of those things as well, you know, if you've got two or three action sequences in your script and i always say this i say is it worth axing one of them mm. so that you can make one or two of them really, really good really good yep. as opposed to th- three of them being rushed and not having enough time and then you go well this scene here what what happened and the, the big trick is if we take that out 
if A and B still get to C and all this is done is not to, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I would always, and so in, in my way, I'm like, right, okay, my big epic, epic bling party scene is now just a house party. Yep. And then when I got with it, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay, it's fine. You know, I said, you know, yeah. You know, and as I said, you know, people, people aren't expecting you to have, you know, and people wouldn't give a shit anyway. No, that's the thing. It's very unlikely to make the trailer. If it does, it's for seconds anyway, because people coming to watch this film want to see the mountain climbing, all that kind of good stuff. I love that point though, about, you know, if you've got three big action sequences, do you need all three? Because you can... spend that money on two and really get them good there you know right i I really like that a little bit of advice then for filmmakers coming up anything you can recommend from your you know 20 years of making films and what happened to you at the beginning and you know with rise of the foot soldier and you know all that kind of stuff rolling with the nines and then plastic and onto summit fever what's something that you, you you'd you'd always like to say to your younger self or you know that kind of thing that, that you wish you'd could said or wish you'd known or keep writing, keep, keep, keep doing everything. You'll always get better. Uh, you're not always going to get it right. You think something's going to work and people are going to like it and they don't like it. And you think something else isn't going to like it. People aren't going to like it. And they, they do. So don't, don't, don't ever just when you think you think, Oh, I might know this. You don't, but more importantly, don't, don't, don't break yourself. Keep doing, keep doing and mm. do not, do not worry about, you know, because, you know, as I say, you know, your, your keyboard warriors, your keyboard warriors, you know, you, you got to laugh at them. I'll, I'll give you this one, one quick anecdote, very quick one. This was back when, when A Lonely Place to Die was coming out. Mm-hmm. And this person wrote on, I think back then you had message boards on the IMDb. I think that's what it was. And this person wrote, um, I didn't like Julian Gilby's last film. And I don't like the look of this one. <laughs> so I hope him and his family die of cancer. Oh, what? Oh. I, 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 yeah, but you have to laugh. Oh. Guys, you have to laugh. As we said before, mm. this is a middle-aged guy with his trousers around his ankles. He's mm. just, he's just <laughs> wanked off to Pamela Anderson and his mother's got the pizza in the oven. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's no way you can, you can't take offense. Don't be offended by it. It's, too pathetic yeah. to be offended by it. And there's, there will always be people that, you know, because it's much, it's much easier to just not do anything because if you don't do anything, nobody can ever criticize you for anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyone, anyone, any of your followers, any of your listeners think, you know what? I have an idea today. Maybe I'm going to just shoot it on an iPhone or I've got an idea for a one minute for go into it and go and have fun doing it. And afterwards go and have a drink with your friends or go to a restaurant or whatever, and then do something else next week. And, Fucking enjoy it. It's much, you know what? That's another thing I'd say to them. It's much more fun making a movie when you're 17 and you got no money. <laughs> right? It is. You know? The freedom. Yeah. No pressure. Absolutely. Love totally. That. Julian, totally. you're an absolute star. Summit Fever is available now on digital. Go seek it out. Uh, adrenaline junkies are going to love this. People who uh, like mountain films, adventure films are going to love this. And people who love brilliant dramas are going to love this. Um, thank you, Julian, for your time. Honestly, this has been a really fascinating chat. Thank you. I really enjoyed chatting to you both. Giles <laughs> and Phil. Um, Giles and Phil, we'll have to do this over a beer to be continued. I'd love that. That'd Absolutely. Be, that'd be very nice. Absolutely. (laughs) um, Okay. Go out there, make your films, make it happen. Do as Julian has said. And hey, you're holding an iPhone in your pocket or a a similar phone. Others are available. Go make your films, (laughs) do it, practice, get better all the time. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will see you next Tuesday, as always. Phil Hawkins, you're a star. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a good chat. 
Uh, Julian Gilby, thank you so much. Take care. Gentlemen, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. All the best. Thank you. Bye. 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 The Filmmakers Podcast is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. Subscribe for regular bonus content and special episodes.